In the previous episode... In order to know what's at the root of fatigue and what tests we can run, we need to understand what's available. We need to understand the physiology, the functionality, the biochemistry. And I think it's important to start all this with a comprehensive blood chemistry panel and to know how to read it from a functional perspective, not to just scan it to see if the lab marked anything low or high. That's missing a lot of functional imbalances that you can identify and help your clients to fix. Welcome to Reinvent Healthcare, a podcast for health and wellness practitioners passionately committed to transforming our current broken disease-focused system. Your host, Dr. Rita Marie Los Calzo, is devoted to helping you get results with complex health challenges like autoimmune, hormonal imbalances, and chronic health challenges caused by nutritional and lifestyle-induced imbalances. Here's your host, Dr. Rita Marie. Welcome back to Reinvent Healthcare, the podcast for health and wellness practitioners who are passionate about making a difference. Continuing on the theme of energy metabolism, today's episode is focused on the mitochondria, the energy powerhouses in each and every cell. If you're a health practitioner who really wants to help people to get well, not to just cover up symptoms, not to just apply protocols, whether nutritional or pharmaceutical, we are doing a live event that's just right for you. It's called Functional Nutrigenomics in Clinical Practice. And it's all about how you can learn the genetic testing you can do with people to help you to personalize their diet and lifestyle plans. And when you put that together with your typical really great functional history and lab testing, you're gonna have all you need. So join us for an online virtual event that you can attend from anywhere. It's June 2nd to 4th, 2023. And you can get there by going to nesliveconference.com. That's nesliveconference.com. And we'll also put the link on the show notes page. I am super excited to have as my special guest, someone who knows the mitochondria better than anybody I know. Ari Witten is the founder of the Energy Blueprint System, a comprehensive program that's helped more than 2 million people so far to improve their performance and have more energy. His latest book is Eat for Energy, How to Beat Fatigue, Supercharge Your Mitochondria, and Unlock All-Day Energy. He's also the best-selling author of The Ultimate Guide to Red Light Therapy and the host of the Energy Blueprint podcast. He holds a master's in human nutrition and functional medicine, a BS in kinesiology, and certifications as a corrective exercise specialist and performance enhancement specialist from the National Academy of Sports Medicine, and he's completed all the coursework for a clinical psychology PhD. And today's focus is on how to eat to supercharge the mitochondria. As a practitioner, you need to focus on teaching people to eat right for their particular bodies. And yes, supplements can be helpful, but they don't replace the need for foundational food and lifestyle. So without further ado, welcome Ari. I'm so glad to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, Rita Marie. It's an absolute pleasure. I am excited. I, I listened to your book uh, almost as 
almost as soon as it came out. And it's just really well done, very comprehensive. And I thought it would be a great thing to share with our practitioners. So our practitioners are all kinds, right? They're doctors, nurses, health coaches, nutritionists, you name it. We have them in our program, even optometrists. So I wanted to just ask you some questions and I just wanted to dig in to the foods mm-hmm. and it's just let's let this flow because there's just so much that we can chat about. But Sounds before good. we jump into the foods and all, I wanted to ask you about, you have a whole chapter on the circadian clock and I really would like to dig into a little bit of that and why that's so, so important in working with our clients. Yeah. So it's interesting to do a podcast specifically to practitioners and doctors and functional medicine doctors, because many of them, particularly functional medicine doctors, will be familiar with uh, many of the different strategies and, you know, kind of general themes that that I'm talking about certain things, Uh, gut health or brain health or circadian rhythm and sleep or, you know, body composition and, and things of that nature. And I think What I've done in many ways is synthesize a lot of the information from these distinct, these largely separate fields of scientific literature and create an integration, a synthesis of all of this information in the context of explaining how they affect human physiology, specifically in the context of mitochondrial health and the mechanisms by which the body produces energy. So like understanding how circadian rhythm and gut health and brain health and body composition um, and environmental toxicants and all of these different types of things are actually feeding into the energy generation and energy regulation systems of our body. In that context, you know, how does, it's not that your listeners have never heard of this, the importance of circadian rhythm or sleep, but how does it fit into the context of mitochondrial health? How does it fit into the context of energy regulation? And there's, there's many different mechanisms. So first of all, we have a central clock in the brain and that central clock in the brain is, is located in the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And it's basically like a 24 hour clock. This is the primary reason that when we, travel to uh, halfway around the world to a new time zone, we get jet lag because of the disruption of that clock. Mm -hmm. And it has to be reset in certain ways. Now that central clock is primarily responsive to, I don't know why we use a German word in the scientific literature, but primarily responsive to the Zeitgeber, the environmental input of light. And in response to that, that circadian clock is set to those signals of when it's getting the signals of it's daytime, the time to be awake, alert, active, and energetic, and the signals of, okay, it's nighttime, it's time to relax and enter relaxation, regeneration, sleep mode. And um, we also have, as a newer scientific discovery, we also have uh, a lot of peripheral clocks in the tissues of our body and, and organs of our body. So we have clocks in our in our heart and in our intestines and in our muscles and in our bones and in our skin and all these different in our in our um, hormone producing glands we have clocks in these tissues and those peripheral clocks are primarily responsive to the zeitgeber of nutritional inputs now 
what we want to do if we want to optimize the whole system, the circadian rhythm, the totality of the circadian rhythms of our body, we want to optimize the central clock and the peripheral clocks, and we want to synchronize the two together. And when we do that, we create widespread beneficial effects on many aspects of our physiology. So to give a, a sense of some of the mechanisms here, the circadian rhythm impacts many different hormones and in some cases regulates in a major way, many different hormones, including thyroid hormone, cortisol, uh, testosterone, growth hormone, insulin, leptin, and melatonin. And which are all related it, to energy production, right? So it, in one way or another, yeah, through many in different one mechanisms. Way or another. Yeah, yeah. And, and melatonin, uh, we can talk more in depth about that if you'd like. It's, um, it's, it, it turns out, you know, melatonin has long been thought of as this kind of, oh, yeah, it's a sleep hormone. You know, many people in the general public don't even know it's a hormone. They just think melatonin right. is a sleep <laughs> supplement, right? Um, but in the, in, the, in the healthcare community, it's generally thought of like melatonin is this sleep hormone. It's produced by the pineal gland in your brain. And it, you know, it's really important for sleep. Well, it turns out that melatonin is actually uh, in many, in many ways, an energy hormone, not in the sense that it is directly leading to more energy production. Um, like the more melatonin, the more energy you have, but melatonin is the most powerful mitochondrial antioxidant known. And wow. Our mitochondria are meant to be bathed in melatonin every night. So if you are not optimizing your circadian rhythm, you are not bathing your mitochondria in that melatonin every night. And that mitochondria, that melatonin serves as a direct antioxidant, and it also uh, interacts with our internal antioxidant defense systems, where it recharges our internal antioxidants, glutathione and catalase and superoxide dismutase, that internal ARE, antioxidant response element. And that, that recharging of that internal mitochondrial antioxidant defense system is meant to happen every night. So if you don't have optimal circadian rhythm, you're not going to have optimal melatonin, and therefore you're not going to have optimal mitochondrial function. Um, in addition, actually- So I want to uh, just stop you there because yeah. this is, I really think this is critical because you said at the beginning that a lot of you know functional medicine and other practitioners know a lot of the stuff, but this I think is not something that's generally well known. It's starting yeah. to be a bit more well-known. And um, melatonin also has, of course, um, strong neuroprotective properties and anti-cancer properties as yeah. well, um, probably very much related to its effects on mitochondria. A more interesting sort of cutting edge discovery around melatonin is actually that melatonin is not only produced in the pineal gland in the brain, but is actually produced at the cellular level by mitochondria for mitochondria. Oh. And that melatonin doesn't enter the bloodstream. It stays in the cell um, where the mitochondria are basically producing it for themselves. Um, melatonin is an ancient molecule. Um, I don't know if it's, I, I believe, hundreds of millions of years old. In, um, and the ancestors of the bacteria that became our mitochondria or the proteobacteria that became our, our our, um, our mitochondria actually produce melatonin. And it's because it's such an incredibly important antioxidant molecule. Now, 
this is a bit of a digression, not directly related to nutrition, but the reason that they produce that melatonin or the main thing that actually affects the production of it is actually light is specifically red and near infrared light boosts levels of mitochondrial produced uh, melatonin levels. And there's actually studies in, uh, in, in animal models where they have removed the pineal gland entirely and shown that it, the removal of the pineal gland doesn't actually affect the production of cellular levels of melatonin, doesn't affect levels of, of melatonin at the cellular level. Even when you remove the pineal gland, the main, what, what is thought by many to be the only source of melatonin. So uh, melatonin itself is kind of its own interesting story. But to get back to circadian rhythm, you have the circadian rhythm impacting on all these different hormones I just mentioned, thyroid, uh, testosterone, growth hormone, insulin, um, cortisol, melatonin, all of these are in one way or another related to energy production. It's also impacting on neurotransmitters and it impacts on dopamine, on serotonin, on orexin, which is a wakefulness and energy neurotransmitter and, uh, and GABA as well. All of those in one way or another impact on energy and mood and sort of related aspects of that. We also know circadian rhythm ties into the glymphatic system. That's a relatively new scientific discovery of the last few years, um, how the brain sort of cleans itself out through this glymphatic system of the brain um, while we sleep. And if you're not sleeping deeply or long enough uh, or have high enough sleep efficiency, which is very much related to the circadian rhythm, that cleaning, that nightly cleaning of the brain, brainwashing, so to speak, uh, is not as effective as it should be. We also know that it ties into the circadian rhythm ties into um, autophagy and mitophagy, the cleaning out of dysfunctional and worn out and broken down cell parts and mitochondria and the rebuilding of new healthy cell parts and mitochondria also happens very intensively at night while we sleep. Um, and there's, there's several other mechanisms, but, you know, just, just looking at those, there's many different avenues that the circadian rhythm is tying into uh, energy production, either directly or, or indirectly. And really, we can think of sleep and energy as sort of two sides of the same coin that yes. are linked by our circadian rhythm. So uh, again, we, we have those light inputs, mainly for the, the central clock. That's the, the, the key zeitgeber for the central clock. And then we have nutritional inputs uh, that are the primary zeitgeber for the peripheral clocks. So happy to dig deeper where you'd like to go. Yeah. So this is cool because people don't think of that depth of circuit. Well, I don't get enough sleep, so I'm naturally going to be tired during the day. But it's way more than that. It's a much more deep cellular and hormonal issue that's going on. And yes, mm -hmm. I would like to go deeper with the nutritional part. Let's talk about okay. that. Okay. Yeah. So... There's a researcher named Satchitananda Panda, who maybe some of the yep. listeners to this podcast yep. are probably familiar with and maybe have read his book. Yes. Uh, and he did research where he was tracking the eating habits of Americans. And they used a, a phone app and they tracked it in a pretty sophisticated way. And they got some really good, really novel data from this study. And the main thing that they found is that most people, like 85% of people are eating a uh, uh, an eating window from the first bite of food that they consume during the day to the last bite of food that they consume of between 14 to 16 hours per day. Ouch. Mm -hmm. And we, we know that 
from, from many, many different lines of animal studies um, and human studies now that that's real bad news <laughs> to do to your circadian yes. rhythm, to consume food that, for that much of the day. Um, we know, you know, there's studies that they've done in animals where, for example, they give rats the same exact diet, the same amount of food, but they either give it during their, there's a couple themes on the, this type of experiment, dozens of different studies, but they either will give the rats access to the food during the wrong period of the day, during the period that they are supposed to be asleep and resting. Um, or they'll give it to them during the time they're supposed to be awake. And those studies show that there are dramatic differences in terms of energy levels, in terms of body composition, how much fat they gain, uh, in terms of, you know, cognitive performance, physical performance, um, all kind metabolic health, all kinds of markers of different aspects of, of metabolic health, oxidative stress and inflammation and insulin sensitivity and things like that dramatic differences, even though they consume the exact same type of food and the exact same amount of food, just at different periods of the day. Similarly, um, there are studies where they give the, the, the research subjects or animals, and all these studies have also been done in humans, access to food for different lengths of time. And what these studies have consistently shown, both in animals and in humans, is that the optimal window of consuming food is in humans much less than most humans eat. And typically it's actually between six that what, what, what most of the research indicates is that six to 10 hours a day is the optimal length of the feeding window. And, you know, we know that roughly maybe 10% of people or less are actually doing that. So most people have a lot of work to do in that regard. And there are studies where they take people who are consuming a 14 or 16 hour eating window. And all they do is reduce their feeding window down to 11 hours or 10 hours. They don't change what they're eating. They don't change how much they're eating. All they do is say, you know, continue eating your normal diet, but just do it within these hours of the day. Mm -hmm. And those studies consistently show reductions in markers of inflammation, reductions in markers of oxidative stress, improvements in insulin sensitivity, uh, and improvements in sleep quality and energy levels as a result of making that one modification. So the, the eating window is a critically important zeitgeber to the, those peripheral clocks. The next aspect of what we want to do is link that period of time, that eating window, to the central clock in the brain by trying to match as best as possible the, 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 the light exposure to the eating times. So what I mean by that is if your, the bulk of your light exposure is happening between these hours, the bulk of your food intake should also happen between these hours. Mm -hmm. Now, what most people are doing, over 50% of the population consumes more than 65% of their daily calories after 6 p.m. From a circadian rhythm perspective, that's not optimal to consume the bulk of your food intake after the sun has already gone down. So what we want to do instead is actually shift most of the food intake earlier in the day. And there are several studies where they have 
um, they've put people on, they've taken overweight people and they've put them on exactly equal calorie diets. So like 1200 calorie diets, um, eating the exact same food. So they, they literally assign people to eat these specific foods and these specific meals and these specific portions. The calories are matched precisely, but uh, people either are assigned to eat uh, a big dinner like a 600 calorie dinner and a small breakfast, 200 calorie breakfast, uh, or vice versa, 600 calorie breakfast and 200 calorie dinner. And what those studies consistently show is that people lose more weight in some studies, way more weight, way more body fat is lost as a result of shifting more of your daily calorie intake earlier in the day, as opposed to later. Uh, and, and again, that's happening at precisely equal levels of calorie intake. So those are some of the, the biggest needle movers as far as how we can use nutritional inputs to optimize the peripheral clocks and help synchronize those peripheral circadian clocks to the central clock in the brain. You know, that's really good news because so many times what happens is we get pushback when we get people to try to change what they're eating. And of course, what they're eating makes a huge difference as well. But mm -hmm. to just know that changing the when without changing the what is gonna get more compliance. And then once we get compliance and they start to have results, then we can go you know, to more detail about why they need to change the what as well. Yes, exactly right. And uh, you know, I, I'm all about low hanging fruit. You know, My book, Eat for Energy, um, was really made in the spirit of wanting to offer dozens of nutritional strategies that are very low effort and very easy to do, but still give big results. It's, it's not, you know, one of these typical diet books that's, that's like, Hey, you know, everybody else has got it wrong. Really. It's not low fat. It's not vegan. It's not low carb. It's not paleo. It's not keto. Really the, the best one best way to eat for humans is this one thing. And you have to, <laughs> right. you know, here's the list of bad foods. Here's the list of good foods. And here's your new cookbook to eat all these new meals. And this is the only way to eat, right? It's, it's really, it's not like that at all. It's really um, flexible and dynamic uh, set like a buffet of dozens of nutritional strategies uh, that are easy to implement and can be flexibly integrated with virtually any dietary pattern that someone's on right now, whether they're eating keto or vegan or anything in between. Great. Um, what about standard American diet? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. So um, I think, you know, that's a really good question, actually. So the, one of the, the foundational changes that someone needs to make is they need to adopt some type of dietary pattern that involves getting rid of most of the processed foods in their diet and eating whole unprocessed foods. And the truth is, and I, I'm sure you'd agree with me, Rita Marie, I, I hope you agree with me, is that there has been far too little emphasis made on that fundamental yeah. dietary change and way too much emphasis, relatively speaking, on specific macronutrient ratios and lists of good and bad foods. The truth is, yeah. uh, if, if you're eating a diet that is completely whole unprocessed foods, you're already 75% at least of the way there to optimizing your health. And, you Absolutely. know, most of the other stuff that people have tried to create whole diet, dietary dogmas and um, dietary cults around 
um, of these specific dietary camps is actually more the details than it is the, the foundation. Yeah, I agree with you there um, 100% because what we see, it's like the 80-20 rule that we talk, that's talked about yeah. in business and in just pretty much anything, is that when you look at what people are eating, if you just remove the processed non-food, I like to call it non-food, and mm -hmm. put in real food, whether it's, you know, vegan, keto, you know, high carb, low carb, but whole natural foods, they're going to get a huge amount of difference. And then as practitioners, it's up to us to go, okay, you came to this level. Some people go all the way, right? They don't have to get real particular. And then other people, okay, you got to this level. What can we do to fine tune this? What's that last 80% that we need to look at to get you to the optimal? And some of that's based on genes and based on previous history mm -hmm. and traumas and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's really important for everybody to see that. And I, yeah, I like that you called them food cults because I call them cults <laughs> and religions, right? And people are like, oh, wow, that's not a religion. Well, you act like it's a religion. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. it, you think it's like the one, the one, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and my book is really coming from the frame of assuming people already have a somewhat healthy dietary pattern. This, this, the truth is everybody has, has heard the advice to, you know, get rid of the processed junk food and eat whole foods. So uh, I, I'm, I'm coming from the frame of, okay, you've already, let's assume that you're already doing the basics, right? I'm not going to yeah. write a whole book rehashing the basics. And once you've, uh, once you're now implementing, you know, eating a mostly unprocessed or entirely unprocessed whole food diet, now let's optimize further, as you said, that last 20%. Right, right. So are there specific foods that you think, I think you have a chapter in that on the superfoods for the mitochondria. What, mm -hmm. what would you say some of those are? And what do you say some of those killer foods are for the mitochondria that we really need to avoid other than the processed food uh, whole thing? Other than processed food, uh, I don't have a long list of foods that I, I tend to demonize. Um, I mean, if we're talking about whole foods, there's, there's not much within that, that I would spend a lot of time demonizing. Um, okay. of course there are certain foods that people can react to, obviously, if you're celiac yeah. or, or gluten sensitive, then getting rid of gluten can be a big needle mover for you. If you're dairy intolerant, getting rid of that can be a big needle mover. If you're oxalate intolerant, you know, getting rid of spinach can be a needle mover for you. But uh, I yeah. think, you know, those are more rare cases than things that I would tend to generalize. And I, I think in terms of energy, 20 percent, right? Right, yeah. right. Exactly. So right, in, in terms of energy superfoods, there, there are so many good ones. One is oysters. Um, hmm. oysters are, are just, and especially when eaten raw are just a wonderful source of so many good nutrients, DHA and zinc and selenium and iodine. And, um, you know, you're, 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 you're getting them in such a pristine form. Um, so I'm a huge fan of oysters. Um, DHA is obviously critically important for brain functioning, for membrane fluidity, for nerve signaling and, for um, also for neurotransmitter balance as well. Liver is another amazing one. I'm a huge fan of liver, especially beef liver, but um, I prefer the taste of chicken liver, even though it's not quite as beneficial uh, in terms of the nutrients provided, but it's, it's basically like uh, nature's multivitamin. 
and it's so rich and so much, so many good nutrients in terms of providing B vitamins, providing uh, folate, providing choline, providing um, vitamin B6, providing all kinds of, of good stuff. I mean, it's, it's really, if I was going to say, here's my number one food for optimizing brain health and neurotransmitter levels, I would go with liver. And then I would probably go with oysters and I would go with uh, fish roe, like salmon roe as uh, a third to that. Um, all of those are some of my top recommendations for as far as animal foods go um, in terms of superfoods for energy. Uh, another, another few good superfoods in the plant-based category are uh, pomegranate. And pomegranate is a great one that has a compound in it called elagic acid. That along with chestnuts are the richest foods in elagic acid. There's much smaller amounts in certain other foods like certain kinds of berries, but pomegranates and chestnuts have way more than, than any other type of food. And that, that elagic acid is converted by specific types of uh, bacteria in the gut into a compound called urolithin A. And urolithin A has now been discovered basically to be the most powerful promoter of mitophagy ever discovered. This is basically the wow. breakdown and recycling of dysfunctional mitochondria and the rebuilding of healthy mitochondria um, that, that should be happening every night while we sleep. So urolithin A is produced in large amounts, again, from this, these elagic acid, the elagic acid or elagitannins. Uh, primarily from pomegranate and chestnuts. So that's a wonderful addition to your diet. Broccoli sprouts are incredible. And I'm sure most people listening to this podcast have now heard of the benefits of, of broccoli sprouts. Uh, they've, they've been shown to enhance detoxification pathways, to be neuroprotective, to be mitochondrial protective. Uh, and they, they are actually a xenohormetic chemicals. So they work on the hormetic pathways. They stimulate the NRF2 pathways in the cell and in the mitochondria to build up the ARE, the antioxidant response element, basically our internal storehouse of antioxidants like glutathione and catalase superoxide dismutase. Um, the one I mentioned earlier that melatonin also interacts with. So hormetic stressors, things like exercise, things like breath holding practices and thermal stress like sauna exposure and cold baths and things like that interact with this hormetic pathway at the cellular, at the mitochondrial level and stimulate this NRF2 pathway to build up the ARE. Well, certain kinds of phytochemicals do it as well. And they're called xenohormetans, xeno with an X. Hmm. And there's a huge body of literature on them. And sulforaphane is probably the top compound in that regard. So I'm a huge fan of broccoli sprout, sprouts, plus they're extremely cheap. Mushrooms of all kinds, medicinal and magical are wonderful foods. <laughs> um, but the, the medicinal kinds, like things like shiitake and maitake mushrooms, are just so rich with so many good nutrients. And mitochondrial protective compounds like ergothionine, as well as immune boosting compounds. I, I think mushrooms are arguably the single most underrated food that we have available to us, just hugely beneficial. And one other one I'll mention is spirulina. Spirulina has, you know, spirulina has been around forever and 
everybody's heard of it and it's offered in juice bars and, you know, everybody's seen it somewhere. Um, but I think there's a tendency to think of it as just kind of like, oh yeah, spirulina, it's like kind of this hippy dippy nonsense. Yeah. It's got chlorophyll, but spirulina, the research on it is actually incredible. And, um, there's some really interesting physiology that's going on there. The main uh, phytochemical of interest in spirulina is called C-phycocyanin. And it's actually very similar to bilirubin. And bilirubin is um, uh, a compound in our physiology that's, that's actually a powerful antioxidant. Um, people, may, people listening to this podcast may have heard of Gilbert's syndrome. Gilbert syndrome yeah. is a, a medical condition where people have very high levels of bilirubin. And what's interesting about it is, you know, we're used to talking about medical syndromes as sort of or diseases increasing the risk of this or that disease. Gilbert syndrome, people with that disease actually have lower risk of many different diseases, particularly cardiovascular disease. Um, mortality, they have much lower rates as a result of excessively high bilirubin. And uh, it, it is actually likely that spirulina, the C-phycocyanin molecule, because it's so structurally chemically similar to bilirubin, seems to provide that sort of same effect. And it's been shown in numerous studies to reduce oxidative stress, reduce inflammation, um, there's all kinds of studies showing it's neuroprotective. It enhances athletic performance. Um, it improves all kinds of metabolic markers from um, blood glucose and insulin sensitivity and, um, you know, blood pressure markers. I mean, widespread improvements in metabolic health to, to the extent that I think if there were a drug, if there were a pharmaceutical made by a pharmaceutical company that had the same research showing it has all just these widespread effects on improving metabolic health, improving exercise performance, improving energy levels, uh, all these different benefits. Um, I, I think that drug would be, you know, hailed in all the media outlets around the world as this incredible miracle drug. Everybody needs to get on this drug immediately. It's got all these amazing benefits and no side effects. You're crazy if you're not on this drug. Um, and I, I think spirulina is on that level on that level. So interestingly, though, over the last few years, we've seen a lot of, oh, but there's all kinds of dangers with spirulina. Have you, have you seen that? And can you comment on that? I've seen people warning of iodine, um, people like in the autoimmune disease community warning about the iodine. Uh, I've seen some people warning of you know, concerns about uh, maybe it's stimulating the immune system in a potentially bad way. I, I haven't seen any research to substantiate any of those claims. I mean, I'm sure that you can find some example of some person somewhere who reacts negatively to spirulina or it worsens outcomes. Um, but that's true of anything. I mean, you can find some somebody who reacts negatively to uh you know, to, to exercise, you can react negatively to sun exposure. You can react negatively yeah. to, um, a multivitamin. You know, I, I don't think that that, that it's, um, I think people need to be careful with extrapolating that too much yeah. from a certain yeah. subset of the population that may be very ill, that may be reactive to certain things. And then as far as the iodine concerns, um, most of the spirulina that I've seen as far as assessed for iodine content has fairly low levels of iodine. I think 
a lot of what I've seen is actually a misconception around associating spirulina with sea vegetables, which have like seaweed, which have uh, high iodine levels. And so there's a warning against consuming um, too high of iodine levels, particularly in the context of Hashimoto's. And, um, and that's warranted and there's research to support that it's, it's a problem to have too high of iodine levels, but it's the problem is that it's a mistake that people are making to extrapolate that concern to spirulina, which does not have high iodine content like seaweeds do. So, um, I think some of it's just misconception. Uh, I'm open to being proven wrong in that way. If somebody wants to share research with me that shows that, you know, no, this subset of the population really should avoid spirulina because it worsens outcomes. But I haven't seen any research to substantiate that. Yeah, thanks for sharing that because that's my, I'm a big spirulina fan. And people say, oh, but I can't, I stopped eating spirulina since I saw all these studies. And I'm like, share the studies, but nobody's able to really show me an original study. It's usually hearsay. So and so said it because they read it somewhere and they read it somewhere. And when you look at the subs, the uh, actual research, there isn't any. Right. So, yeah. Right. Like Like I said, I think it's mostly it's hearsay from practitioners that have made the mistake of associating it with sea vegetables. Associating it with sea vegetables. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. This has been amazing. Um, I would love to go on and talk to you for another couple of hours, but we're almost at our time here. And I would love, love, love to end with, are there particular supplements that you think are superfoods for mitochondria? Like, uh, absolutely don't miss these supplements because there's a big marketing on that. There's a big, you know, push for supplements, uh, this mitochondrial support supplement. And a lot of people go into it under the impression that, oh, I want more energy. All I have to do is take this mitochondrial support supplement without really looking at all these other things, the circadian and the, the foods in them, which we didn't have time to talk too much about today, but the gut and the, the blood sugar and the brain and all that. But mm-hmm. are there any that you like, wow, oh, I really love the research on this. I love the response I've gotten clinically with this uh, supplement. These nutrients are the ones that make sense. Yes. Absolutely. So I would agree with you that there's a lot of misconception around mitochondrial supplements as just sort of like, oh, you know, you provide these nutrients, these cofactors and mitochondrial supplements, CoQ10, some acetylcarnitine, some alpha lipoic acid, some B vitamins, and voila, you've got mitochondrial energy production. I think there's a lot of functional medicine practitioners operating on that kind of um, paradigm that leads them to that kind of thinking. Uh, as well as, you know, doing organic acid tests and then kind of that's their way of assessing mitochondrial function and then saying, oh, you know, you've got elevated adipate, adipate or superate or, uh, and, and therefore we need to supplement with acetyl-L-carnitine or CoQ10 or whatever. Um, there's value in doing that. It's not that it's bad or is counterproductive. It, it, can, it can help, but it's a very limited paradigm and, and sort of myopic understanding of mitochondria. Mitochondria are not only energy generators, but they're cellular defenders. And they are turning down the, the fundamental thing that's regulating energy levels is that they're turning down the dial on energy generation to the degree that they are sensing threats, to the degree that mm-hmm. there is a threat present in the body in the form of really any type of stressor you can imagine from poor nutrition to poor gut health, to psychological stress, to environmental toxicants, to really any other type of stressor, sleep deprivation and so on. Um, And they can sense that in the form of increased levels of oxidative stress, increased 
levels of inflammatory cytokines and increased levels of cellular damage. So um, the, the goal is not just to sort of myopically look at the mitochondria and assess for nutrient deficiencies and say, oh, we're going to supplement with this and that mitochondrial nutrient. If you want your mitochondria to function better, you, you have to also identify and remove the things that cause the mitochondria to turn down the dial on energy production in the first place. So that's the big picture sort of, I, I think, a, a, a big gap in understanding around mitochondria and, and how they work um, and why the solution is not as simple as supplementing with mitochondrial nutrients. Having said that, um, I do think there are a lot of supplements of value, and I think there are several mechanisms that we can support mitochondrial function um, well. One is one of those mechanisms is the one that most people do, which is providing some of these cofactors like CoQ10 and um, alpha lipoic acid, acetyl L carnitine, and B vitamins, and um, and some of the other nutrients. Quite frankly, like broad broad nutrient support also plays into this uh, using a, a high quality multivitamin and multimineral. Many of these different compounds are in one way or another sort of involved in chains of reactions that are, are cofactors. You know, magnesium um, is involved there. Selenium is and vitamin C are involved in, you know, recharging the internal antioxidant stores of glutathione and things like that. So everything is in some way connected to having adequate levels of, of intakes of almost every nutrient. But in addition to that, in addition to all the acetyl-carnitine, CoQ10, D-ribose sort of thinking, um, there's other avenues we can support mitochondrial health. One is things like astaxanthin. Astaxanthin is a unique carotenoid with a, with a very unique uh, chemical structure that actually embeds itself across mitochondrial membranes and stabilizes and protects mitochondrial membranes from, from damage. So astaxanthin is an amazing tool in, uh, in our arsenal to protect mitochondria from damage. Another amazing tool that I, I, I'm actually still shocked by this one at how little known it is in the functional medicine community, um, despite incredible research on it, which is NT factor phospholipids. Um, this is a phospholipid supplement that's, that's patented in, in a unique way. And there are several studies, at least maybe eight or 10 studies that have shown that the, these phospholipids can actually travel through the gut and make it all the way into our cells, into our mitochondria, where they can replace damaged phospholipids in the membranes of mitochondria mm -hmm. with healthy phospholipids. And not only the, the mechanism has been shown, but mo much more importantly, studies have been done in people with chronic fatigue, in people with various types of chronic fatigue, from chronic fatigue syndrome to aging-associated chronic fatigue to obesity-related fatigue to Gulf War illness to several others. And those studies have consistently shown 30 to 45% increases in energy levels just as a result of using that one supplement that it helps improve mitochondrial membranes. And again, that's, this is a totally distinct mechanism from just providing, you know, yeah. cofactors for energy Co production, like right. B vitamins and CoQ10 and things like that. Um, the, is there anything else? Yeah. So supporting, uh, Supporting the NRF2 pathway and building up the internal antioxidant supply is critical. So regular exposure 
Of course, I'm a huge advocate of hormetic stress. I've been talking about hormetic stress for like a decade when a decade ago, I would talk to our, our friends and colleagues in the, in the functional medicine community and none of them had ever heard of the word hormesis and they all gave me a funny mm-hmm. look like they didn't know what the hell I was talking about. But hormetic stress is critical for mitochondrial function. You have to stimulate your mitochondria to keep them big and strong and to stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis, the, the growth and creation of new mitochondria. Um, and just supplementing, you know, again, just supplementing with these cofactors, the CoQ10, the B vitamins, the acetyl L-carnitines and alpha lipoic acid um, doesn't do that. Uh, so certain compounds, sulforaphane being one from the broccoli sprouts um, and other compounds and, and herbs, things like rhodiola rosea is an amazing one. Um, and rhodiola rosea stimulates that NRF2 pathway, acts as a, as a xenohormetic stressor and helps to build up that internal antioxidant supply. More importantly than the mechanism, because there's many different phytonutrients that can do that, but um, rhodiola rosea has been tested in numerous studies in people with chronic fatigue, in people with stress-related exhaustion and burnout, and has has proven to give dramatic improvements in energy levels within a matter of less than four weeks. So, um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of, of rhodiola as well. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the list goes on. Certainly I could, I could mention many others, but those are some of my favorites. That's great. And you've got them in your book, right? So people can get your book and get the list, right? Yes, most definitely. Okay, yeah. So it's Eat for Energy. We have been speaking with Ari Witten, the author of Eat for Energy and many other books. And we're going to have a whole bunch of uh, information and links on the show notes page. So, um, and I highly recommend you get the book. I actually did it on audio and then I went and got the Kindle so I could look at the reference lists because that's how I work. Um, And I'm super excited um, to have had you here. So before we let you go, is there one big takeaway that you can offer to our practitioners, like this is one thing that you should be doing with your clients, with your patients to help support their mitochondrial pathways better? Yeah, I would say one of the things that I'm really trying to get out there that I think is critically important that's that's generally overlooked is the mitochondria in, in our cells are not just these sort of mindless energy generators that just, you know, where you just provide the right nutrients and they work and they produce energy and you restore your energy levels. I think one of the least understood but most important concepts around mitochondria is that actually it's been shown in numerous studies that people on average lose about 10% of their mitochondrial capacity with each decade of life. And it's been shown that the average, the typical 70-year-old only has about 25% of the mitochondrial capacity Mm. as a young adult. In other words, they've lost 75% of their mitochondrial capacity, of their energy producing capacity at the cellular level. And supplementing with magnesium and B vitamins and CoQ10 and D-ribose doesn't fix that. And uh, so... You know, this losing 75% of your of your energy producing capacity at the cellular level, to put it in another way, is basically like going from a Ferrari engine to a moped engine. And even putting in the best gasoline or the best oil doesn't change the size of that engine. So 
you know, again, one of the big things that I'm trying to get across to people is we really have to rebuild the engine. We have to build that engine bigger and stronger. And the good news is that it's possible to do physiologically through mitochondrial biogenesis and uh, hormetic stress, the systematic incorporation of hormetic stress and xenohormetans is critically important for doing that. So uh, that's probably the one idea that I'd like to leave people with. That's awesome. And it, you're right. It's not what we're hearing over and over again. And the whole concept of hormetic stress is, uh, it's underspoken about it more and more these days. But like you said, 10 years ago, nobody even heard of it or wasn't mm -hmm. weren't talking about it. Sure, people were doing things to provide it, but you didn't know what it was or why it was important, like exercise and, and some of the exposures um, to hot and cold and whatever. Yep. So I really encourage you all to get the book. Uh, learn about the mitochondria because most of the people that you see in your practices are going to be suffering from fatigue of some sort or another. And mm -hmm. if you just look at their adrenals and their thyroid and their blood sugar without actually looking at mitochondrial function, you're going to be missing some of that. And of course, those things are important, right? The adrenals and thyroid and gut and blood sugar are all important for mitochondrial health, but we need to, we need to take a step and, and dig deeper. So I thank you so much for being here, Ari. Um, I appreciate the time and the attention and your book is really, you know, cutting edge and I appreciate it. Even though a lot of stuff is for us as functional practitioners, some of it is like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, we, we know that. But the way that you present it and the research and the, the digging deep, like you mentioned pomegranate. I went through this phase, I have to get more of it now that I know more about it where I just was craving pomegranate and mm -hmm. I would get fresh ones but I got this powder from from a company that was just pure organic pomegranate powder and I was putting it in everything I was putting it in my smoothies <laughs> I was mixing it with coconut butter and making a dessert and I just couldn't get enough of it and yeah now that I think about it well even my body is going I can need that I need it <laughs> so it's important to be looking at these things so I thank you again and for all of you out there remember to check the show notes pages uh, and you'll get all the information about Ari's book and whatever other great goodies and links to his website and all that I highly recommend you check it out and also download the energy guide that I put together for you as part of this series on the reinvent healthcare podcast it's at reinvent healthcare com forward slash energy and if you have questions that you want to dig into more deeply just go to reinventhealthcare.com and click on the little navigation thing that says questions and put in your questions and we periodically do a show on just responding to people's questions so thank you thank you thank you and continue to support people with their energy production because it's critical that's where you're going to get great results with people that other practitioners may have overlooked and that's where we're going to change the world one person at a time. So until next time, shine on. Thank you for listening to the reInvent Healthcare podcast. Join the movement of practitioners that are guiding people to actually get well rather than covering up their symptoms. Connect with us at reinventhealthcare.com to access resources and tools that will empower you to create a thriving health practice.